Welcome to the teaching ministry of Walt East, lead chaplain at Sky Valley Chapel. We hope this teaching will serve as a practical guide for your daily walk as a Christ follower. We encourage you to follow along with your Bible and life notes, which can be found in the podcast show notes or on our website at svmin.com. Well, it is the silence of the last 400 years that now screams down every avenue, every block, bounces off the rock walls of the city gate, and echoes through the temple chambers. And I think that we need to catch that silence. 400 years of silence. 400 years since the the last prophet, Malachi, had spoken on behalf of God to this nation called Israel. And yet this little nation holds on to promises. Promises going all the way back to the first book of the Bible. Genesis, the book of of beginnings. Promises to a guy named Abraham. That if you leave your family and you leave your country, I will make a great nation out of you. I will send a son, a seed, a deliverer. And through that, all the nations on the earth will be blessed. And they've been holding on to promises. For 400 years, heaven has remained tight-lipped. So for 400 years, they've waited. They've waited for Messiah. One day, he'll come. One day, he'll show up. And it will be unmistakable. Oh, and people will know that he comes from God. He's going to do things that no ordinary human being could do. And, And when he comes, he will set things straight. And for 400 years... Israel has been holding on to nothing but promises. And they're tired. They're weak. They're worn out. For the last six to seven hundred years, they've been a mere pawn traded amongst the world powers, being taken over by the Assyrians, then the Babylonians, then the Persians, then the Greeks, and now the Romans. When will our day come? And for the last three years... This rabbi has been wandering around with a ragtag band, gathering more people around him, and he fits the profile. For the last three years, people say that he's able to walk on water. His spit heals incurable diseases and causes the blind to see. With a touch or a word, molecules rearrange themselves on bodies and leprosy is healed. He teaches The type of teaching that draws grown men and women as well as little children. Words that cause folks to leave everything they own behind and say, this is what I've been waiting for. So when he arrives in Jerusalem on that week, of all the weeks on the calendar, oh, the silence of 400 years just explodes. This is their high holy holiday. This is Passover week. This is when every good Jewish family makes a pilgrimage to Jerusalem just to be there to celebrate Passover, their their Independence Day, their 4th of July, when God broke back into their history in the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus, when God brought Egypt, the most powerful nation in the world at that time, to their knees with plagues, the final one resulting in the death of the firstborn in every single household except those of the Jews that listened to God. Then he led them out of Egypt. He led them through the Red Sea. And they've been celebrating it 
ever since. So on their high holiday of patriotism, of freedom, of deliverance, when he comes into the city, when he comes on a donkey up through the city gate, that's why the crowds start chanting, Hosanna, Hosanna, save now, save now. And you feel a chill go down your spine when someone took lungs full of air and screamed out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The crowd goes wild. To come in the name of someone means to come in their power and in their authority. To come in the name of the Lord, oh, oh, save now. Bring some lightning bolts. Save now. And just in case this powder keg of a nation needed one more spark, someone somewhere up on the rooftops on a crowded balcony overlooking the entire scene screams, Blessed is the coming kingdom of David! And it just erupts. Everybody, the last time, the last time your nation had freedom, had power, had its own military, had its own judicial and spiritual rule, the last time your neighboring countries feared you was nearly a thousand years ago under the kingdom of David. Save now, save now, come with power, save now, kick Roman butt. And the crowd is chanting this Palm Sunday. And at the end of the parade we saw two weeks ago, Jesus simply walks into the temple. He looks around. He realizes the parade took a little bit longer than what he planned. It's late in the day. And so he just went back out, out to Bethany. And they camped outside the city because there's no room left in Jerusalem. For the last six chapters of the book of Mark, it's been building. For the last six chapters, there's been, there's been opposition. For the last six chapters, been a, there's been a group of people that hate him. And they're trying to figure out how to get rid of him, how to kill him. The spiritual leaders. Do you see what he did? At the end of the parade, they had to hear what was going on and observe what was going on. Can, can anybody figure out where he's staying? How can we get him? How can we, how can we pin something on him? How can we flush this guy out? And they hear the cheers of the crowd. Save now. Come with power. And he walks into their headquarters just to look around. We picked it up last week. Jesus starts early in the morning, and he heads back to the temple from Bethany. And as he starts moving towards Jerusalem, the city, there's a, there's a fig tree there, and, and he's hungry. It's morning. He's hungry. The fig tree has leaves, and, and if a fig tree is in leaf, there should be an expectation that there's fruit there as well. So Jesus goes and looks for fruit on the fig tree, and there is none. And I think this sets up the entire week. He walks up to a tree that's pretending to have fruit, but it has no fruit. And when there's no figs, he curses the tree, and then he walks into the temple, and he knocks over the tables and the chairs. The entire week, the stage is set with these two scenes. You masquerade in having fruit. You masquerade in calling yourself a Christian. You masquerade by where you go to church. But he can see under the leaves. He can see that there's nothing there. And now he's going into the temple. A church that masquerades in, at being loving and accepting and open and a place where all nations should be able to come and find the one true God. And the, and the people are being ripped off at the scales. The temple has its own currency. They can't, even, they can't even give in their own monetary value. They have to exchange it at, at exorbitant rates. And he tears it down. And he, then he stays there teaching. On Tuesday morning, we find him going back to the same place. He's not, he's not running away from the fight. He's picking one. 
And now the spiritual leaders have had time to collect their thoughts, and they come to him. So if you've missed the last two weeks or you've missed the last 13 months, you're caught up, okay? And you can always listen to the previous messages on our podcast. If you don't know what that is, you can ask me. If you don't know how to get it, you can ask me again. No problem. We'll help you out there. But this, what they're talking about here in these chapters of Mark, these remaining chapters that we're going through the next couple months, this is the most important week of your life. I want you to grasp that before we, we keep on reading. This is the most important week of your life. This is that week, the week where he will claim who he is and do what he needs to do. Three times before getting into this week, he has said, I will allow the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees to take me, to mock me, to spit on me, to, to beat me, to abuse me. I'm going to allow them to hang me on a cross. They're going to kill me. And three days later, I'll walk out of my own tomb. Well, people, if he does this, then this week splits all of time. And the only hope that you and I have of any eternity in any life is here. It's this week. Mark chapter 11, verse 27. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. You don't think the disciples understand what's going on? Here they come. Three times he's told us on the road that this is the group that will beat him. Three times he's told us that this is the group that will kill him. And when these guys arrive on the scene, you don't think the disciples were on heightened alert? Is it going to go down here? Is this where it happens? On top of that, these three groups, they represent the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of, of 70 elders in Israel. These three groups are the, the supreme court in the nation of Israel. Not just judicially, but morally, but ethically, spiritually. There is no higher word, no higher law in your entire nation in Israel than the Sanhedrin. This is their place. This is their capital. And yesterday, he flipped over their tables and their chairs and their headquarters in their temple. Verse 28. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked. And who gave you authority to do this? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. You can't do that, Jesus. If you're ever called before the Supreme Court of the United States of America, and you're standing there and they tell you, well, you know, you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so up to God, yeah, no. You can't turn around and write immediately and say, well, I want to ask you a question, and you've got to answer me. You can't do that unless, unless you believe that you are a higher authority than that court. You don't say, I'm going to ask you a question. You better answer me. These guys, they had been staying up all night, I'm sure. They'd probably been in a huddle, and they, you know, they've had to call their wives, you know, Martha, I won't be coming home tonight. We've got some work to do. Yeah, some guy kicked over our tables and, and moved our chairs, and yep, same clown we've been going after these last couple years. You know they've been up around the, around the fires and around the, the candles and the tables late at night. How do we get him? How, how do, what do we do? And the city is swollen to 20 times its normal population because everyone's coming to, to, to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. If we try anything in the midst of the crowd, this by force, and there's going to be a, a riot of epic proportion. We, people love this guy. We, we've got to do something to make him slip up so the people won't support him. We're going to ask you one question. By what authority do you do these things? And Jesus says, nope, 
I'm going to ask you a question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? Tell me. Well, they discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, and then Mark tells us, they feared the people. For everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus. We don't know. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. And here's what's at play. Let's break it down into, into our own language here, can we? I want you to take that half sheet of paper, it says life notes at the top, and, and follow along. And we're going to have a couple, uh, a few fill in the blanks there. It'll help you, help you take notes. After the city's been turned upside down, questions remain. And now they try to get him to answer it in front of everybody in the temple court. And their question in our language today is this. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to ride into our town, our temple, and flip over our tables and chairs? Who gives you authority to do this? And Jesus says, let me ask you a question. John the Baptist, remember, folks, it goes all the way back to chapter 1. The guy that baptized Jesus in the Jordan River. The guy who, who before that had told the people, hey, don't look at me. Don't think that I'm great. There's going to be one who's about to come whose sandals I am not fit to even stoop down and untie. And when he baptizes Jesus in the Jordan, the heavens split. The spirit descends like a dove, and a voice from heaven comes down and says, This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. So Jesus goes all the way back to this guy. Remember this guy? We read about him in Mark chapter 6. John the Baptist spoke against Herod's marriage because Herod had married his brother's wife. Not his brother's widow, but his brother's actual wife. And John the Baptist spoke against Roman sexuality and Roman mores there. And no one speaks against Roman sexuality. John the Baptist could have gone back and said, well, you know, times have changed and words actually don't mean today what they, what they meant then. And, and, and maybe, you know, you, you shouldn't deny yourself. Go ahead, Herod, just, just have at her. But John held to the truth of Scripture, regardless of what Rome said about sexuality, and they threw him in prison. And one night when the party was raging in Herod's palace and, and the alcohol is flowing, they cut off his head and they bring it out on a platter to the delight of his drunken guests. You see, John immediately became a martyr, and, and he became one that, who, who had stood up to the Roman government on behalf of the truth of God's Word. The Scriptures and the people now call him a prophet. So let me ask you a question. Was John's authority from heaven or from men? In the highest spiritual court in the land, they look at each other and they realize, if we say it's from heaven, then he's going to say, then why didn't you listen to him? Why didn't you believe him? When he baptized me, he claimed that I was the Messiah. He claimed that, I, that the one greater was, was coming. He called me the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And heaven itself claimed that I was God's son. They, they can't claim that what, what Jesus is doing is from heaven. They can't back up his story. They've got to get rid of him. But if they claim that John was a mere man and, and didn't have heavenly authority, the, the crowds are going to tear him to shreds. The highest spiritual court in the land, in their own headquarters, in a crowded temple with a crowd that is watching, has to admit, um, 
We don't know. We don't know what spiritual authority is. Are you kidding me? Who do you think you are? And this is the question that I put at the top of our life notes today. Who does God think he is? And for us, this leads to a second question. What gives you the right to change my life? What gives you the right to change my life? What gives you the right to to waltz into my temple and flip over my tables and my chairs? What gives you the right to tell me what I have to do? Now, folks, let me tell you, if I'm honest, I wrestle with this question. I wrestle with the exact same questions here. And I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands because whether you want to admit it or not, I know that you do too. When we come to the passages in the Bible that we love, we're like, oh, it's so good to read the Bible today. Just to have a wonderful fellowship with God. But when God steps on something that we're dealing with, or the pastor or preacher steps on our toes, oh, we don't like that. Who do you think you are to tell me how to live in this area? Who do you think you are to tell me what to do with my finances, what to do with my job, what to do with my relationships, with my sexuality, with my ethics, with my morals? Who do you think you are? He walks into the temple. Temple is boss in Jerusalem. And he says, this isn't the way it should be. And yes, their question is my question today. Who does God think he is? To demand that I have to deny myself, that I should sacrifice my wants, my desires, that I have to be born again. Because this is what Rome and culture today holds as the highest value. Nobody in America should ever deny themselves, should deny themselves their pleasure, their orientation, their sexuality, their wants, their desires. Why in the world would you ever deny yourself? This is the very essence of life. Don't deny yourself. Why would you sacrifice something that's so lovely? In fact, it's it's the way you were made. You were born that way. And yet Jesus' call to the crowd has continually been anyone, anyone. Does does, Does anyone exclude anyone? No, that means everyone. Anyone can follow me. You have to deny yourself. Pick up your cross. This will take sacrifice. I know that you've all been born with sin and into sin, he says. But you've got to be born again. You've got to be born spiritually from above. And the question that we respond with is, who does this God think he is? What's the table and chairs in your life today? That when we touch on it, when we teach about it, that you immediately go, oh, that, I'm not going to listen to this part. I don't like that. That you immediately say, well, it's different for me. And that's what this entire story is about. And now in Jerusalem, it culminates with, you call yourself a fig tree, but there's no fruit. You call yourself a church of love and acceptance of grace and mercy, but there's no grace and mercy. And he shows up and he says, let me tell you who I am. I'm the one John the Baptist prophesied about. I am the son of God. And just in case, and just in case you need something to make it clear, he says, let me tell you a story. And we get to Mark chapter 12. He then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He built a wall around it. He dug a pit for the wine press and, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. It's story time at church. Remember when you were a little kid and you, did you like story time at church? The crowd and the religious leaders, they're, they're, they're now embarrassed and they're humiliated and they're all saying, What? You're telling a story about a vineyard that's been given a watchtower and a wine press, and and wait a minute, we know that story. 
We know that story. And I want to take you back to, to, first, to the first century, first century Jewish hearing ears. These people knew exactly where he was going with this. It's as if someone came today and said, let me tell you a story about a country. Uh, I'm not going to name which one, but we'll call it the, the home of the free and the land of the brave. Or the land of the free and the home of the brave. Either way. And all of us would say, oh, wait a minute, he's talking about us. And this is exactly what's going on here. In your notes, I've, out, I've noted Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Isaiah, one of the greatest prophets. Isaiah 5 is, is, known, is known as the song of the vineyard. And it starts like this. It says, I will sing for the one I love, a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Sound familiar? This is the story Jesus is telling. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I'm going to do with my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland neither pruned nor cultivated. And briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. And just in case someone needs to connect the dots here, verse 7, the vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. And he looked for justice and he saw bloodshed for righteousness but he heard cries of distress oh believe me when when jesus had had this moment where the religious leaders are completely embarrassed in their own headquarters and he starts telling the story of a vineyard that, a, that an owner planted with great vines and built a watchtower and a wine press put around it when he says once upon a time in the land of the free and the home of the brave these people say oh we know who he's talking about. he's talking about us and jesus goes on he says let me flip the script on you here Going back to Mark chapter 12, verse 2. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the ten tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. This was the agreement. When, when, when you leased out your vineyard, this was part of the agreement. You had these tenant farmers, and you got part of, the, part of the crop. He sent servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And the crowd is stunned here. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one was killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him. And they then threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and he will kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read the scripture? And he quotes here from Psalm 118. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone or the, or the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Mark then tells us, then they looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him 
and went away. He says, let me tell you about the fig tree outside. Let me tell you about the temple. Let me tell you about what I've been teaching these past three years. People, he says, this is about you. Before we finish and and go home today, I want to point out some things that we should note here in 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 this text. The first thing is the owner gave them everything they needed for success. He gave them everything they needed for success. He says, let me tell you about a perfect vineyard. He said, I've given you everything, Israel, to protect you, to to prosper you. The owner gave them everything they needed. This is your land flowing with milk and honey. And I think sometimes when we talk about faithfulness and surrender to this God, we don't understand the picture that he has for us. Because this might not be Yours or my understanding of financial success. It may not be your understanding of health success. It may not be your definition of work success. But God goes, trust me. I knit you together in your mother's womb. You are fearfully, you are wonderfully made. I have a plan for you. I have success for you in mind. Maybe not your definition of success, but trust me. You need to trust and embrace my definition of success. You need to trust that every good and perfect gift comes from God. That breath you take, that acumen in business that you have, that ability to do the things that you do to earn a living, that comes from me. It has a purpose, and I need you to use it for my purpose. Oh, Israel, understand this is what I'm expecting from you. I'm giving you much, and I expect much from you. And yes, when I show up, I expect there to be fruit. Not to masquerade and call yourself a a God follower, but to actually have fruit, to have figs, because I've blessed you so abundantly. And it's not just blessing abundantly. The owner also gave them an incredible amount of patience and persistence. He said, I've sent messenger after messenger after messenger after messenger after messenger. Some of you, you, you've beaten, some you've killed, some you've knocked over the head. You've been sent prophet after prophet after prophet. And what do you do with the prophets? You ignore them. You kill them. You see, we have an an owner in the story that gave them his only son as a final plea. He goes, so I sent my heir, my only son. This is your last hope. And at the end of the story, Jesus goes, and I know that you're going to reject me too. But guess what? I'm the cornerstone upon which all things are built. The choice is yours. You ask, who, do I, who I think I am? I'll give you a story. I'm the son of the owner, and I'm the last message of hope that you have. And if you choose not to follow my words in red, Israel, the owner will give you no other options. Folks, over the next few weeks, we're going to go through that week. That week that has changed history. That week that has divided history. That's divided our calendar into A.D. and B.C. Because of his death at the end of that week and because of that next Sunday morning, him walking out of his own tomb, it shows his persistence and his patience with us. A God that Romans 5 says, while we were still sinners, sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. You and I don't deserve him. We don't deserve his grace. We don't deserve his mercy. But while we were still sinners, he died for us. 2 Peter 3.9 says this, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, 
as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And you may be here this morning. Um, you may not have crossed that line of belief to where you've trusted Jesus Christ with your life, where you've made him your personal cornerstone that you've built your life upon. And that's okay. We welcome folks that want to get closer and closer and closer to Jesus. We don't expect perfection. There's not a single one of us in, the, in this room, not a single person within the sound of my voice, or that we'll be listening on this podcast later that is perfect. None of us are perfect. None. Not a single one of us. Every single one of us are in need of Christ and his forgiveness. And this is a God that says, I move my grace and my mercy constantly towards you. I've given you my son. This is your last hope. This is your last option. So what do you do with his, his teachings in this last week of his life? Because with everything I've done, God says, in the sacrifice of my son, I do demand obedience. You're allowed to reject this stone, but it will become the cornerstone. And if you reject it, you're going to trip over it. You're going to stumble. You're going to fall. See, that's the question that we're left with today. Who or what is your cornerstone? He says, it's your choice. Is Jesus the very cornerstone of your life by which everything in your life is built on? What a story. joining us for this message. For more information on Chapel Mall and the ministry of Sky Valley Chapel, please visit our website at svmin.com. You can support this ministry on our website, Facebook page, or by downloading our app in the Apple or Google Play Store. Have a blessed day.